Well, tonight we're moving into Revelation chapter 12, and Revelation 12 is kind of the crux of the whole book. Those of you that are here tonight and maybe have some questions after the service, uh, you're going to have a leg up on those who didn't uh, come tonight or wasn't able to come tonight. And those of you who've been through the book of Genesis with me, you're going to see even more why it was so important that we spend that <clears throat> two years studying the book of Genesis. We go through Revelation 12 this evening. I've entitled the message on how to defeat evil because the devil gets a lot of play in this chapter. And I, I really don't like to talk about the devil. I like to talk about Jesus. I don't like to make much of the devil. I like to make much of Jesus. So can we give him another hand of praise just to make much of Jesus this evening? And there's, there's a propensity on the fact on the part of a lot of Christians to, I don't know if it's fear, I don't know if it's um, curiosity, to want to sometimes talk a lot about the enemy when our calling is not to talk about him, but our calling is to talk about our Lord and about our Savior. We've looked at already in this series how that the testimony of prophecy, the, it's, it's all about Jesus. So the effect of prophecy is when we talk about Jesus. Scott Peck, in a book that I read, <clears throat> well, I guess back in the 80s, he opened up his book, The Road Less Traveled, with these words, Life is difficult. This is a great truth. It's one of the greatest truths. It's a great truth because once we truly see the truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult because once it's accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. And in my old paperback copy of that book, it's underlined, because this is what Jesus told us. Jesus, in effect, told us the same thing in much more concise words. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. If you're going to follow me, there's going to be persecution. God warned us that this life would not be a puffy cloud life. It would not be, and it's the way I've always described it, a, a pink cloud type of feeling that a lot of, I think, um, Christians are looking for those pink cloud emotional experiences. There's nothing pink cloud about wrestling with cancer. There's nothing pink cloud about wrestling with the death of a child. There's nothing pink cloud about what the believers are going through in Pakistan tonight, for instance. There's nothing pink cloud about the mother or father or believing son or daughter who's had a loved one killed in Thousand Oaks, California last week. And so it's important that we understand that when we look at Revelation, we're not only looking at a picture of what's about to come, but we're looking at, we're seeing that dual law of prophecy that I've talked to you about. Sometimes in Revelation, you're going to go back and you're going to see how something was fulfilled, and that fulfillment was a predictive element of what was going to happen again in the future. You're going to see some of that this evening. So I think, looking back on all the ways that we talked about interpretation of the Scriptures, I think one of the things that I'd like to do out of this, and, and if we can finish this message tonight, one of the things I'd like to bring out of this is, remember we talked about 
part of the goal of a translator is, is not only what did it say to the original audience, the people who were reading this chapter, but what does it say to you and I today? What does it say to the church through the ages? And let's just say, I don't believe it will, but it might. Let's just say the church is here for another 500 years before Jesus comes. What will it say to the church then? And so the goal of every preacher is to look at this and to say, okay, what is this saying to us tonight? Because you and I are not undergoing the kind of persecution that people in Pakistan or Indonesia are going through. We're not going through the kind of persecution that the early church was going through. Most of us, if not all of us, we have it rather well compared to what the early church went through. Wouldn't you agree with that tonight? We have it rather well compared to what some of the persecuted brothers and sisters in the church are going through tonight. Would you agree with that as well? I mean, you're sitting in a comfortable place without any fear of, of assembling together to study the Word of God. So one of the things we have to look at is, is to ask ourselves, all right, if we're going to apply this to ourselves today and also understand it prophetically, both past tense and future tense, maybe one of the questions we ought to be asking ourselves is, why is life so difficult? Why is life for the mother with a disabled child? Why is life so difficult for that child, for that mother and father? Why is life so difficult for that person who, for whatever the reason, continues to make the wrong choices in life? Why do I keep making the wrong choices in life? I know what it's going to do to me, and I can't tell you how many people, Christians, that I have talked to over the years, they would like to blame it on the devil, but you can't blame it on the devil because we're each responsible for our own actions. But they know that if they do this, that's going to happen, and even though they know that's going to happen, they do it anyway, thinking somehow or another this time they might get away with it. When I was a youth pastor, I used to illustrate this like this. I'd say, you know, you can put out a mousetrap, and you can catch a mouse that night, and his brothers and his cousins by the dozen saw that mouse get his head cracked and got lost over that piece of cheese, put that same piece of cheese and that same mousetrap out there, and all the mice that seen it, one other person is going to think, I can do it without getting hurt. And over and over, believers are like that. And so we have to ask ourselves, why? And I think Revelation 12 holds some answers to that. And then I think sometimes those of us that are in different communities around the world, why are some believers in Korea right now just experiencing a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit? And it's almost like you can plant a church anywhere in Korea and overnight it'll be running thousands. Well, it's because after World War II, that persecuted church that remained faithful where Christians were being burnt alive in their churches, they continued to fast and pray and love and forgive their enemies, and the generations that are following are reaping the harvest of that intense time of prayer that they had. And then why in other places where you had reformation revival, for instance, like Germany, and my good friend Austin Brown that is a missionary to Germany, one of the missionaries that we support here from Woodland, Austin, right there in the heart of where the Reformation took, took place, many young people who, whose parents proclaimed to be Christian, they proclaimed to be Christian, but they're bound by drugs and runs an incredible, not only life challenge or teen challenge center, but building a church there as well. Why do things like that happen? Well, we're going to look at part of that in Revelation 12. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand up with me tonight, because this is not only symbolic about what's going This is not, I shouldn't say symbolic. This is not only going to help us to understand what's going to be happening in the Great Tribulation, 
which is going to help us to understand what we're battling with tonight. Remember, you can't take all of these and just make them future as though they don't matter to us. I went to great detail in the early parts of this series, and I've gone back to that from time to time to remind us there are lessons out of each chapter for you and I, and that's the reason that I say that when you read Revelation, you read about a church that is worshiping God. So let's start together at verse 1. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. And that word great, you need to kind of pay attention to that in the scripture tonight, in this particular chapter. I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. And then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his heads. And his tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. And her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days, or a time and a times and a half. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole earth world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. And then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It is come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, and the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their life so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come to you in great anger, knowing that he has a little time. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle, so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. And there she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for times, times, and a half a time. And then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children and all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. And then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. Father, tonight in the name of Jesus, we just ask you that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and then, Lord, sanctified wills to apply this with the help of the Holy Spirit to our lives today and also wisdom, Lord, for the times that are yet to come. I'm asking you, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would cause this, this message tonight to give us the tools, Lord, to live pure lives, holy lives. For those that love your coming, the scripture says, we keep our lives pure. And so I pray tonight, help us to know, we are not going to be defeated by evil but we are going to defeat evil in the name of Jesus. And all God's people that agreed with that said, 
Amen. God bless you. You can be seated tonight. Wow, you read this chapter, and now you understand when you read this chapter and you talk about great wings and a river gushing out of the mouth of a dragon, a woman fleeing to the desert, and you read all of these things, you understand why people sometimes get discouraged reading the book of Revelation. I made you a promise at the beginning of this, of this book. If you'll stay with me all the way through this, you can understand this book. Amen? And you can apply this book to your life. This book is not incomprehensible. It's not easy to understand, but it's not incomprehensible. And if we apply ourselves and apply the book to our lives, and the Bible says that we'll be blessed for doing so. Well, there's a lot of symbolism here tonight, so let's get started. First of all, the dragon is a symbol for Satan. You know that the Bible is referred to him as that serpent. You know that the Bible is referred to him all the way back to the book of Genesis as a serpent. But I think one of the important things, and not that I have to dwell on this for a long time with you tonight, but you might have to dwell with other people for this for a while, especially in this age that we're living in right now, Satan is not an idea, okay? Satan is not a force, Satan is a reality. He is a created personage. He is a person who has fallen. And there's a lot of emphasis today upon just taking all of this as symbolism. And I think it robs people of how, as we get to Ephesians chapter 6 on Sunday mornings, it robs us to how we successfully live and overcome in our lives. Satan has a face. Satan is a personality that we're going to have to deal with. It's the reason I said to you tonight, I don't like to talk about him a whole lot because we have so many movies, we have so many fanciful books, we have so many ideas of what Satan is like. Sometimes people today in our modern world, they look at and they describe the devil as being in a red jumpsuit a pitch, and a forked tail and a pitchfork, and they think that's what the devil is like, and they mock Christians for that. Well, what they fail to understand is I have on one Sunday morning when I was preaching about who is the devil, what is hell, and I explained this on a Sunday morning, this was the medieval church's way of mocking the devil. They didn't believe this is who the devil was. They knew much better than that. But the red suit was the sign of a jester. The forked tail was a sign of an animal. He was being mocked and made fun of. So whenever you see that sort of costuming on the devil and somebody trying to mock Christians for what they believe, what that mocker is doing is revealing their absolute ignorance of theology and church history and what Christians believe in the Bible. Furthermore, the devil is not in hell tonight. And occasionally somebody will send me a cute cartoon where the devil is in hell and he'll get somebody in hell and he'll ring up to heaven and say, it's bad enough down here without her or him. And so he's trying to get rid of them out of hell. But the devil's not in hell. He will be cast as we will see later in the book of Revelation. He will be cast. He will be the cast to the very lowest parts of hell himself. He's not there yet. So what we're looking at here is, is a significant event. Look at verse 3 with me again. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event, and I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his head. Red means is talking about the blood and the warfare. We looked at that when we talked earlier about 
some of the horrible things that are going to come upon this planet. The seven-headed, if you remember, we talked about the significance of numbers in the book of Revelation. I'm just kind of giving you some review here so you can kind of keep in mind the symbols you're reading. The seven represents uh, total or completion or fullness. It's it's a, it's a completely evil devil that you're looking at. It's a completely evil thing that he's about to do. And of course, the crowns on his head represent an army. He's bringing seven crowns together. He's representing a fullness of, a, of an army that is not only demonic, but will also be human beings as well in that great end time battle. And of course, the dragon represents a cosmic being. The dragon is very important as a symbol because when we think of the serpent, we think of the reptile, we think of the one that was judged in the Garden of Eden. We talked about that in the book of Genesis. I'll be glad to talk to you about that after church tonight. But <clears throat> the thing that is important here is to recognize this is the most fearful symbol of all. And that's what you're beginning to see is the most fearsome display of evil. The world only thinks it's seen a fearsome display of evil, whether it was with the Mongols, whether it was with Hitler, whether it was with Pol Pot or anybody else. The world hasn't seen the evil that is going to come upon this world because of the enemy. The problem is that we have a lack of knowledge in general among believers today about the Old Testament. People don't read the Old Testament. People don't study the Old Testament. I have people all the time tell me I'd rather read the New Testament because there you read about a God of love and in the Old Testament you read about a God of wrath. That's not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when you read about God in the Old Testament, you read about a compassionate God, a loving God, a merciful God, a forgiving God. You read some awful things that took place in the history of human beings and the battle of good and evil and as God draws forth his people. But the early church knew these symbols. They knew what they were. And when they read this, and this is what's important when you get to Revelation 12, remember this. Look at me right here, because I want you to write one word down after I finish. When they read this entire book, every single chapter that you and I are reading, they came away with one thing, hope. Would you write that down? Because this book is all about hope. This is a persecuted church. This is a suffering church. This is a church that understands things that you and I have never had to face before. And when they read about this, they recognized that they were dealing with the devil. They were recognizing they were dealing with Satan, this red dragon. They recognized that the very word devil means slanderer. Now you know one of the reasons that God hates gossip the way that he does. Because when you gossip about somebody, you're slandering their name. And it's amazing to me how quickly things can get passed around in gossip and grow and grow and grow. And so... We're never more like God when we love people, forgive people, and we keep their names safe. And we're never more like the devil when we hate people, we dislike people, and we gossip about them and try to pass around the good news. I mean, the bad news. And what is it that sells in our world today? Bad news, fake news. We don't know who to trust anymore. And it's causing a crisis of confidence in America today because if Donald Trump is successful with his way of trying to demean the press, and not that the press hasn't been, we've said for decades as evangelical Christians that the press has been unfair in their coverage of us as evangelicals. We've said that. But if we're not careful, our president is not supposed to be fighting the press. The press, the press is supposed to be allowed to ask the questions that they're allowed to ask. And it's up to you and I as the readers to be discerning consumers of the news. 
Now, if you think that's political, forgive me, but I won't back down or apologize for that statement. We have a crisis right now. One of the great things about America is the freedom of the press. And that freedom of that press includes things that I don't like sometimes, but then it's my job to get the word out in a powerful way. And right now, nobody even knows what the word evangelical means anymore when it comes to politics. And that's a part of the slanderous work in our current day and time, if I try to give you a contemporary understanding of that. Because all of a sudden, as some young people said to me, oh, I don't want to be an evangelical because y'all hate people who don't believe like you do. That's not true. The word evangelical simply means to preach the good news about Jesus Christ. That's what the word evangelical means. And so when the press takes the word and uses it, and, and 86%, according to Pat Robertson today, I was listening to him, Pat Robertson said that 86% of evangelical votes went to President Trump. The problem, Pat Robertson said today, was this. Nobody really knows how the press defines an evangelical anymore. But here's how we define evangelicals. Evangelicals are people that believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and salvation. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? I thought that was pretty cool. Second thing I want you to see out of this chapter tonight, <clears throat> giving you a, a, an illustration now of, of how I see this playing out in our generation, is Satan is limited. What you see here is a limit to the power of Satan. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, Jesus says one of the most incredible statements to me that has helped me with my understanding of spiritual warfare and helped me with my understanding of prophecy. Jesus said to, to Peter, to Simon, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. It's important that you notice that two word has ask. Satan is limited. He just can't simply barge into your life and start doing whatever he wants to do. And whatever God allows to come your way is for your good and for his glory. And once you are so sold out to Jesus that your life doesn't matter anymore, once you are so sold out to Jesus that your will doesn't matter anymore, once you are so sold out to Jesus that your pocketbook doesn't matter anymore, once you're so sold out to Jesus that your very physical life holds no more meaning to you, Satan has lost his battle against you. And that's the thing that Satan would have to fight against Peter because Peter, according to church tradition, tells us was not, he asked not to be crucified right side up. He asked to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy of being crucified in a manner like his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was. When you're dealing with that kind of passionate follower of Christ, hell is impotent. And that's the point that God is calling each of us to if we're going to defeat evil in this chapter. I think a better question for you and I to ask ourselves tonight is, why is there sin in this world? Why did Robert Bowers walk into a Pittsburgh synagogue for the birthday celebration of a little girl and begin slaying all of those people? What possessed him with such hatred and anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism has been with us way before Jesus Christ. There were people that hated the Jews and tried to wipe them out. Why are gun purchases up in Thousand Oaks, California tonight, according to an article in the USA Today newspaper? Why are gun purchases up after what happened at that popular night 
right spot where college students were hanging out and somebody just walks in randomly shooting. Gun purchases are up because people are fearful. And the article goes on to talk about middle class people, wealthy people, all coming in to buy handguns and find out what it takes to be permitted to carry them. Ankle holsters, hip holsters are being sold. When fear grips a community, and then when you go on to read the rest of the article, whenever there is a shooting in any town, whether it was Littleton, whether it was Newtown, whether it was uh, Thousand Oaks, California, whenever there's a shooting, immediately handgun sales go up because people are petrified and fear. Why does this happen? Why do fanatical Islamists just drive? Why do they strap a bomb on their bodies and drive to a synagogue or maybe to a, another mosque of Muslims who don't believe the way that they believe? And why do they blow themselves up? Why do people walk into restaurants and to an opera house in Paris and just randomly begin killing people and shooting people? I think those are the kinds of questions we have to begin asking ourselves. And then I think we have to look honestly and say, let's bring it back a little more closer to our hometown. Why is there parental abuse in our, why is there, why do I read cases in the newspaper locally occasionally of a child abusing their elderly parent and robbing and stealing from the parent and causing their parents to lose? Why did I have to go into a house one night where a son was stealing his mother's painkiller drugs while she was dying of cancer and racked of cancer and have to call the police right here in our own community and sit there and pray and plead the blood of Jesus over her? Why is it that parents abuse their own children? Why would a man beat up his wife? Why did I have to go to a house right here in our own community in Brownstown and stand between a woman and her abusive husband until the police got there? Why did I have to do that? I will tell you why. Because there is a real devil and there is real sin in our world and I am sick and tired of hearing people try to dismiss it as though somehow we can educate or throw more money at the problem. We need a return to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need evangelical convictions again. We need evangelical convictions. If you don't want to be Pentecostal or charismatic, that's fine with me. If you don't want to be mainline church, that's fine with me. But we need the pure preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not tongues. It's not healing. It's not liturgy that defeats the devil. It's the name of Jesus Christ. That's why this is so important right now. And it's why it's so important that you and I even ask ourselves, why do we keep saying yes to the same old sins? When people come to me and say, I know I've been here before. I don't know why. I don't want to be somebody's toilet where they just come in and vomit and then leave me and pull in the handle and flush. I want to see people become whole and healthy. I want to see people walk in victory and grace. Look me in the eye. There is a way to walk above the deception of the lies of the devil, and you will never regret having lived a pure life for Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect. I have to say I'm sorry all the time. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect. I have to say I'm sorry to God all the time. But there is a way to defeat sin because when you live a life of sin, you allow the devil to put a ring in your nose and he will lead you into places you never thought you would go. And that's why it's important to ask ourselves questions, especially of chapters like this, so that we just don't go, oh, that's for the great tribulation. God has a word for you tonight. God has a word for me tonight. Another thing I want you to see is Satan is an accuser. Satan is an accuser. 
He's been accusing the people of God from the beginning of time. He's a slanderer. He'll come to you and remind you of your sins. You may have been through discovering Woodland. You may have been through discovering spiritual maturity with Norma. And you're praying maybe 30, you're reading and studying your Bible 30 minutes a day. You may even be journaling. You're tithing. You're giving. You've been through discovering my ministry with Pastor Rick and Heinz Plowman right over here. And, and uh, you've discovered a ministry and you're serving in ministry. You may have even gone with me through discovering my story. And you've learned how to share your story. And you've, been, you've maybe led somebody to Jesus. But every once in a while, you know how the enemy will jump on your shoulder and say, how can you call yourself a Christian? You know what you did. You know what you thought. You know why you did that. Anybody know what I'm talking about tonight? Don't be afraid to put up your hand because if you don't, you're lying. (laughs) You see, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's his job. You can put it down now, sweetheart. You, You can, he's the accuser of the brethren. He tries to come along and defeat us through guilt. It's the reason I tell parents all the time, don't try to manipulate your children with guilt. I had prayer with a man this morning, and just, we just prayed together, and he says, Pastor, I find myself doing the thing that my parents did to me, and I know I'm not supposed to do, and he says, I try to manipulate and motivate my children with guilt, and he says, they end up wanting to stay away from me the same way I stayed away from my parents. You can break that chain. You can break that bond. There is an anointing in the Holy Spirit that breaks that bond. Stop letting the devil define who you are. Let Jesus define who you are. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus tonight. You are a beloved son or a daughter. You are more than an overcomer through Jesus Christ. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before God day and night. I have decided if God's going to listen to it, I don't need to. Hello? I mean, that's true. If he's going to listen to it, I'm not. The next thing I want you to see is Satan knows his time is short. We just read that in this chapter. Satan knows his time is short. Now, the next question I think is important to ask ourselves is, why is there a devil? I I don't know. I can tell you more easily why there is evil in the world. I've often asked myself, why didn't God just vaporize the devil? You know, I've... I've tried to think that through. God, why did you allow him to do this? Now, it's important to, when I tell you, and being honest with you, as I have been several times through this chapter, through this book, there are some things that I don't know, and I have read the best commentaries. I have talked to some of the best scholars. Um, I was invited by the senator of t- from Tennessee to a private meeting with some people who are, who are um, eschatology scholars and prophecy scholars in the book of Revelation. He invited me in, and I was just very privileged to spend a day with him and to ask questions. It's something that theologians have never agreed upon. We don't know why that God didn't, but we trust in God's wisdom. Now, that's important to understand. And I'm not telling you that to, to say, oh, wow. I'm just telling you that I have really given time to trying to understand this. There's an old saying, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. You ever heard that before? Sure. Well, I don't want the devil close to me, but here's the point. 
I did want to understand why. Listen to this. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. What I do know about my enemy is this. Maybe it's not as important for me to know why he's there, but when I know what he's afraid of and angry about, I know another way to war against this devil in prayer. Amen? Time is important in this book. Now, let me say this. Time is not only important, important in this book, but it's important in this chapter. Time in heaven is not like time on earth. That's the reason the Bible says that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Okay? It's just not like it is upon this earth. Things are going to be totally different in heaven. But we know that he's terrified. We know that he has tried from the beginning, and we'll get to more of this as we progress through the chapter. We know from the beginning he has tried to stop the plan of God, which brings me to a point that I want to just point out to you. I'm not saying it is, but I think what you're seeing here is one of those dual laws of prophecy that we've been talking about. Because when you look at this chapter, the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. That, to me, speaks of not only a past event, but a future event. A past event and a future event. And I'll try to explain that more as we go along. But you might want to write out to the outside of that verse in your outline, past and future event. And I'll try to explain that. So the next question I ask myself when I look at this is, okay, I know why there's sin and evil in the world. I don't know why there's a devil in this world. But this is the question that lost people, and you've been asked this question by people at work, you've been asked this question by people at school, and that is, if God is good, why didn't God stop the evil? Okay? Well, God did stop the evil. God stopped it at Calvary. He defeated the devil. Those that don't love their lives, their pocketbooks, those who don't put mother or father or brother or sister before Jesus, they have conquered. But you can only do that when you've been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ and suddenly you love Jesus more than you love anybody or anything else. Nothing between my soul and the Savior, not of this world's elusive dreams. That's the key to understand. He stopped it at Calvary. Satan has no authority in this place. Satan has no authority in my life. Satan has no dominion in your life. His power was broken at Calvary. But when you yield ground to the devil through his temptations, or when you, can you hear me? Oh, okay. When you yield ground to the devil, when you yield ground to the enemy, what you're doing is giving him dominion in your life. Get it? Good. When you yield ground to the devil, you're giving him dominion. He can't take it. He has no authority in this place. He cannot take it. And so it's important that we understand that concept. 
Well, I'll explain more of that as we go along, because now what I want you to see is his war is ultimately against God. His war is not ultimately against you and I. It's against you and I because we love the Lord. Okay? All right? Let's look first of all at the woman. And now you're going to have to bear with me. How much time do I have left? You're going to have to bear with me because I've got to explain some more symbolism. And if, if you need to leave, I want you to feel totally free to leave. But if I don't finish this message tonight, it will not, I won't be able to pick it back up until January because, believe it or not, next week is Thanksgiving, and the week after that, we're right into our Christmas uh, series. So it will be, I've, I'm going to finish this message tonight, and it'll be recorded. But if you, need, you won't offend me or hurt my feelings or anything else, I'll just pray the fleas and ticks of a thousand camels in your bed tonight. No, no, I won't. I understand. You've got things to do. But the war against God, first of all, you've got to look at the woman. The woman. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance, and I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Now, we've already seen a woman, that woman, Jezebel, we've already seen her addressed in one of the letters who's leading the people of God astray. We're going to see another woman in this Bible. The Bible, the King James Version calls her the great whore, the great harlot, which is symbolic of the, of the uh, compromised church. And we'll talk about that later when we go on. But now you're looking at something else. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this. Who is this woman? Some people believe it's Israel. Some people believe it's Mary. Some people believe it's the church, and I'm going to tell you what I believe, okay? But I've been real honest with you. I've told you what some people believe, and you can go research that more, but I'm going to defend why I believe what I believe as we go through this tonight. I believe the woman represents the entire Messianic community of faith. (laughs) The entire Messianic community of faith. Now, that's an important statement. I haven't used... I don't use phraseology like that a lot, but messianic community. What do you mean by that, Pastor? I believe it includes all the people of God who have looked forward to or are alive at or who are looking forward to his coming. Jesus Christ is coming. I think this begins with Eve, where God gave to Eve the promise in the Garden of Eden. Back to Genesis again, where God gave to Eve the promise that your seed will crush the head of the serpent. I believe it includes Seth, that godly lion, who after Cain slew his brother Abel because he was jealous of God's blessings upon Abel's life. God gave to Adam and Eve a third son. That son was Seth. And that son, Seth, was warred against because that was the lion, the messianic lion, the seed of Eve. That was the lion that Jesus was born through. That was the lion that we read about, if you remember, we went through in the book of Genesis where the sons of God desired to come down and marry the daughters of men. And we looked at how this was involving the line of Seth. I believe that line includes Abraham and why the enemy tried to destroy Abraham and his faith and why Abraham and Sarah went back and they said, well, maybe we need to fulfill God's will. So they had an Ishmael. It never pays to get ahead of God. You want to wait on God. Amen. And so Isaac was born. And then I, of course, and, and I can't go through, but you're beginning to see why Genesis is so, so important to understanding this. You go all the way through Isaac. You go all the way through King David and how Saul tried to slay David because David was the one that the Messianic line would continue through. You see how he tried to slay all the Jews during the um, 
during the dispersion when Haman came up with this plot to murder all the Jews and Esther went in and stood before the king saying, if I perish, I perish, but it ended up Haman was hung on the gallows. It included when Herod tried to destroy the Christ child when Jesus was born. It included, and I maybe should back up, it included how Satan tried to vilify the reputations of, of Joseph and Mary. And we'll be looking at that during the Christmas season. And then how that Herod tried to kill the Christ child. It included when the devil thought he had defeated Jesus by his crucifixion at Calvary. It included when Jesus rose again from the dead and the day of Pentecost came and the church was baptized in the Spirit and the church as we know it was born and persecution broke out against the church. It included when the Judaizers tried to come in and bring a works of law upon that infant church and confuse them. And Paul took such a firm stand that would end up not being delivered into the hands to the Gentiles, but Gentiles, but being delivered into the hands of Rome by the Jews themselves because they so hated the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe it includes all of us today and those who have been alive in the church history line. The enemy has always been warring against the people of God. Now, let me walk through that just a little bit more with you because I think you'll see why I don't believe that it's just that the, the, the woman is Israel. First of all, this woman, she's clothed with the sun, the moon, and a crown of 12 stars. These are all symbols of royalty and dominion. I don't, we're not going to go much into that. But the church has been given dominion in Christ. Can you say amen? When I told you earlier, Satan has no dominion in this place. The New Testament and the Old Testament is full of the teaching about the dominion of the church. And we'll talk, we've talked about that at other times. The other reason I want you to see this tonight is, is because Israel, Israel is, can't alone be the one that is being talked about here. And it can't be Mary alone, but it can't be the church because the church didn't give birth to Jesus. Israel gave birth to Jesus. However, the church has been grafted in. We are the wild olive branch. How many know what I'm talking about? So I don't have to explain that from the book of Romans, where Paul says, you are wild olive branches that have been grafted into the true vine, which is Israel. You've been grafted into there. So the victory is Christ. What he was trying to do, Satan was trying to do, was destroy Jesus. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was called up to God and to his throne. Now, this is symbolic as well of the rapture. This is not the rapture, but it's the same word used, the same word parousia, catching away. Just like Jesus ascended to the Father, just like Jesus after the resurrection ascended to the Father, that, that word being snatched is being used right here in this chapter. It's a fulfillment of Psalms chapter 2 in verse 9. You will break them with an iron rod and you will smash them like clay pots. How many of you know, coming back to the sun, the moon, and the stars, how many of you know that he is the head and we are the body of Christ? How many of you know that Christ fills all in all? How many of you know that God answers the prayer of Jesus and Jesus said, Father, I pray that they may be in us even as you are in me and I am in you. How many of you know tonight you can't separate us from Jesus Christ? We're not Jesus. He's Jesus. He's the head, but we're a part of his body tonight. And that sun, moon, and the crowns, that dominion, that power, that rule has been given to you and I. And we've already looked at in two chapters before how we don't wield that power the way the world wields that power. Second thing I want you to see is the battles that Satan fights in his defeat. 
because there are several battles here. It's a war, but there are battles in a war. Have you ever heard the saying, you may win the battle but lose the war? Okay, so there's several battles here, and it may look at times like the enemy is winning, but his war is against Jesus. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event, and I saw a large dragon with seven heads, ten horns, with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw, down to, threw them to the earth. Now, those stars, as we've already looked at, that's a prophetic way, a type way, and, and I'm kicking it up a little bit because I don't want to lose you, but I do want to finish this. The stars are one of the ways of referring to angels. And so this is where the church and theologians have gotten the, the opinion and the idea that, that the demonic horde is made up of about one-third of the host of heaven. And believe it or not, there are some people that have tried to number that, but I think that's foolish because, you know, there's no way we can know the number of that. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and the child was snatched away from the dragon and was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her 1,260 days. Satan did not want Jesus born. That's what this is all about. This is why I believe this is a past event, because Satan had already fallen. Satan had already fallen. He is already defeated. Jesus will make a powerful statement when the disciples came back from witnessing and testifying about Jesus. He would, they would say to his disciples, he was rejoicing. He was laughing. He was happy. And he said, I beheld Satan fall. <coughs> I beheld Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Remember that? I can give you the reference for it if I need to, but I mean, that's just a powerful, powerful illustration of what I believe happened in the past. Satan didn't want Jesus to be born, and you see that manifestation. Let me go back to Genesis again. Pharaoh was called a what in the book of Genesis? A dragon. If you go forward into the prophets, Nebuchadnezzar was called a what? A dragon. Who do you think was manifesting that evil rule? Who do you think has manif manifested the evil rule behind Stalin where he murdered three million Jews? Who do you think manifested the evil rule behind Hitler? Who do you think is beside, behind the wholesale slaughter of the unborn children around the world today? It's the manifestation of the dragon still making war against the Lord. But when Jesus stretched forth his hands, as I told you earlier, he defeated evil, and I've used this illustration before, but I think it's an apt illustration. It's like D-Day. Many people, listen to me now, many people across Europe did not know that Hitler had been defeated when our troops landed on the shores of Normandy. The week that I spent at Normandy doing services for the military and getting tours of the war zones areas and those landing areas, that was one of the things that stood out to me, was the battles continued even though Hitler was technically defeated at D-Day, many people across Europe did not know that Hitler had been defeated. How many people today in the world that you live in do not know that sin and evil has been defeated and they just got finished gorging on a month's worth of horror movies and gore movies about evil in our world? I refuse to watch that garbage because I know sin has been defeated in Jesus' name. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? 
But I think this passage is also prophetically looking ahead because you can't read it without seeing it, and we'll see it as it's developed in the rest of the book. I think this passage is also telling us how God is going to care for his people during the Great Tribulation. And if I'll bring that back, I'll bring that out when we come back in January and continue preaching through this. Now, here's something that you need to see because this is an interesting statement. The war is in heaven. The war is in heaven. How can the war be in heaven? How can the war be there? I mean, that's because when you read this chapter, well, let's just, let's take a moment right here. There was war in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels and the dragon lost the battle and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before God day and night. They have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb, by their testimony. They did not love their life so much they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. But the terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. Two things I want you to see there is one, how is a battle fought in heaven? And secondly, how the enemy was cast down to the earth. As I told you earlier, Jesus said, I behold him fell. I don't think this means that the battle took place before the throne of God. Paul makes an interesting statement. Paul says, I was called up to the, if you know it, say it with me, third heaven. Okay, there's the heavens the Bible talks about of the cloud uh, of the sky right above us. Then there's a place called heavenly places where we battle against the enemy. The Bible tells us that the devil is the prince of the power of the air. He has been given a certain amount of power in this area. It's, it's power that was yielded to him by human beings, okay? And there's where we fight in doing our intercessory prayer. Satan has been cast down upon this earth, but he has no authority upon this earth if the church takes its rightful place. The only reason there's not a triumph over communism or the only reason there's not a triumph over socialism or anything like that is because the church in times past, it's just like right now in America, there are many people willing to give up our freedoms of worship, our freedoms of press, our freedoms of communication, all in the name of expediency. Friends, we need to understand that document called the Constitution that we have today, that is the most valuable document in the world outside of the Bible because it was built and founded upon that and it's guaranteed prosperity and freedom of worship like we've never had before. And it's important that we understand that. There's a war taking place in the heavenlies tonight. And that's why your Saturday night, look at me, your Saturday night prayer makes a difference because you're warring against the enemy. Michael is the one leading this. Now remember, Satan is the slanderer. His name before the fall was Lucifer. <coughs> Satan is a slanderer, but he's now facing this great archangel called Michael. And you know what Michael's name means? Who is like our God. So if you named your son Michael, every time you're calling him, you're going, who's like our God? Who's like our God? Every time the teacher calls on your son Michael, who's like our God? 
I mean, that's exactly what you're saying. It's a power. Remember that word E-L at the end. It's the sign. It's, it's, it's symbolic of Elohim and all of those names like that. Well, his war is against the people of God, and Michael stands there interceding for us. We see him in the book of Daniel doing the same thing when Daniel was praying. Now, instead of you and I being thrown to lions here in America, the enemy's much more cunning than that. We throw ourselves away to fame, debt, materialism. Some people trying to stave off the effects of old age. You know, they, they give more time to their physical appearance than they do to their spiritual growth and welfare. We're facing a time now where parents are having to decide, is my child going to be able to play ball? Because if he plays ball, that means it started out, well, we're going to do it on Wednesday nights. You can choose church or Wednesday nights. Now they're making people choose between Sunday mornings. I get this all the time from people. Pastor, we'd be in church, but my son's got baseball. My son's got football. My son's got soccer or my daughter. You see, we're throwing away a heritage of our children by thinking that somehow or another, we can make up for it in the family. The family cannot replace the church. The church cannot replace the family. The family cannot replace the church. And the church cannot replace the nation. And the nation can't replace the church. And in the Bible, you see a very clear delineation of power between government, between the church, and between family. And that's come out later on in this series as well. When the dragon realized he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. Those of you that have read a lot of dispensationalists, you will find a few sensational people say, well, the eagle is a sign of the United States, and that's America protecting Israel right there. There was no United States when this book was written. Can I say that again? There was no United States when this book was written. It's like the guy who said, you know, if the King James Version was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. There was no King James Version when the Apostle Paul was alive. There was no New Testament yet when the Apostle Paul was alive. Okay? Now, what these wings mean are symbolic. You can go back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19 and verse 4, where God talks about bearing them up on eagle's wings. You can go back to the book of Isaiah, where God talks about eagle's wings. This is a supernatural way that God has of protecting them. God may use the United States in that, during that great tribulation time. I don't know, but that is not what this is about. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for times, times and a half a time. <clears throat> then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water. It flowed from his mouth. This is so funny to me. This, the church is laughing, by the way, when you read this right here. The early church, this, you're seeing humor, but you're seeing hope as well. We read this and go, ooh. The church is laughing right here. The dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth, but the earth helped her by opening his mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children and all who keeps God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. And then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. First of all, we know the enemy tried to kill Jesus. We know he tried to destroy the church in his very infancy. We know he tried to compromise the church with legalism. We know from reading Revelation, he tried to compromise the church with immorality. 
When that didn't work, he turned to more persecution. But there's also a prophetic fulfillment here in the future as well because of that dual law of prophecy. When you read Isaiah, for instance, we'll be talking about the great passage, the virgin shall conceive. That, was con- that verse was fulfilled in Isaiah's day. Not a virgin as Mary was, but a young girl conceived and brought forth a child and named it exactly what Isaiah said that the child would be named. You've got a dual law of prophecy. It was fulfilled, therefore, the Bible says, the birth of Jesus. That dual law of prophecy is an important law to understand. And if you haven't listened to that message, you need to go back and find that one online and listen to it. I'd have to look it up to tell you which one it was. But here's the thing you need to see. A place prepared for her. The, The reading of this says it's to the west, not to the east. It's not to the south. It's to the west. Some people believe it's Petra, could be, I, I don't know. It could be, I mean, um, and I can see why some people believe it's Petra, but I don't think Petra would be big enough. That's my personal opinion. I don't think Petra is big enough. I think it's somewhere to the west in the mountains that, the, that those persecuted people of God, the Messianic community that are in Jerusalem at that time, we talked about the battle in the last message two weeks ago, the battle in the city of God, That Messianic community of Jews and Gentiles who have given their hearts to Jesus, they will have to flee because the Antichrist will be wanting to set up his his throne and wanting to rebuild a temple and make sacrifices to himself in that temple. They will flee to the West. There, God will supernaturally protect them. Again, you're looking at symbolism here. The dragon tried to drown her with a flood of water. This is, remember we talked about some of the reversal of images uh, that were in the Old Testament. This is almost like him trying to do to Israel what, how God delivered Israel from Egypt. Remember the Exodus and then the waters came down upon Pharaoh and those poor charioteers that were following behind him and they were drowned. Well, first of all, we know this is symbolic because no dragon can gush that kind of water. So whatever sort of deluge that this is, and I do believe that there have been meteorological events at times past that have happened because of some sort of satanic influence. Whatever is going to happen right here, the enemy will try to destroy the, that community of faith because if he does, he discredits the word of God. But the Bible says the earth opens up its mouth. This is symbolic going all the way back to the book of Exodus of where Dathan and those uh, followers of his rebelled against Moses and Moses called them out and the earth opened up and swallowed them up and all of their families and then shut right back upon them. We know that that has happened in history before in times past. So whatever is happening here, what you need to see, God is in control. Okay, God is in control. We're going to see more about this war as we go on. But the angry then, look at this, the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children. Well, who will the rest of the children be? It will not be just that messianic community then. It will be a worldwide persecution of Christians. If the two witnesses, and I gave you the possibility of this, if the two witnesses are indeed two literal people who are going to be preaching, I gave you my reasons why I don't think it's Enoch and Moses. But if there are two witnesses that are literally preaching in Jerusalem that causes that wrath, then 
if that's if that is that and they're killed and they're raised up on the third day i i told you what i believe it is it's it's the preaching of the gospel it's the keeping of the word of testimony we looked at that but i told you there are some that believe that if it is those two witnesses then this fits in perfectly with those who say this will begin the second half of the Great Tribulation, where the first half of it will be a time of relative peace and prosperity, but deception, and people will think all is well because everything is going so good. And then the enemy turns upon the church. And what you're about to read in the rest of Revelation is going to get more violent as we see this war go on. But the rest of her children then is the church around the world, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony. I maintain this has always been the case with the church. I maintain this has always been the case in every single generation. It's why I cannot buy into saying all of these symbols have to be literally fulfilled because if you literally fulfill every one of these symbols, then you've got problems because the symbols then start conflicting with one another. But if the symbols represent truths that are in the Bible that I've tried to bring out to you, then I think it's, it's easy to understand. And then finally, I won't be wrong with this, and we're closing. Mark or somebody, if you'll come on up, I'll just go through this real quickly. How does Satan war against us? What are his tactics? He instigates. John 13, 2 said it was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Jesus, Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Have you ever had a time in your life when you've been tempted to betray Christ? I have. I have numerous times where the enemy said, if you will just not preach this, if you will just not do this, you know, I had a church call me one time and says, you know, if you'll play your cards right, this is what we can do for you. And I just simply said, you know, I gave up gambling when I got saved. I had another church call me in, in, in Dallas and offered to fly me to Dallas and says, we've already decided they, they were a board-run church. We'll call you as our pastor. As long as you are willing just to preach and not lead the church, we'll take care of the pastoring, you just be the preacher. And they made it sound very attractive. And I says, I'm not your hireling. There's a temptation to betray Jesus, sometimes even by good people. Always think things through carefully. Never, look at me, I don't want you to miss this, never sacrifice your calling. Judas sacrificed his calling. He fulfilled prophecy but he sacrificed his calling. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we've already seen how Jesus warned these pastors of those churches, how they were about to lose out. You don't betray your calling. Secondly, he tempts. I'll give you a verse for that. He inflicts with God's permission. He struck Job with terrible boils. He sows discord. He snatches the seed of the gospel. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. Your friends are blinded. I never ever talk to anybody about Revelation unless they ask me about Revelation. When I go to Starbucks, I don't go and say, hey, can I talk to you about the book of Revelation? You know, when I'm invited to speak, I don't go, can I talk to you about the book? Now, I get asked occasionally, and then I'm happy to do so. But even then, I take it all back to Jesus, all back to Jesus, all back to Jesus, all back to Jesus. Your friends are blind to who Jesus is. He prowls like a roaring lion. Now, remember, he's prowling tonight because he's looking for you. 
He's looking for you to compromise, to give in. And how do we defeat him? By the blood of Jesus. Our testimony. And loving Jesus more than our lives. Now, let me just say this. The blood of Jesus, when you hear me once in a while, and I try not to say this on a Sunday morning, but it's just like I try not to use the King James Version. It's in there and it's going to come out. You'll hear me sometimes say, and Lord, I plead the blood of Jesus. When I say that, that's not a magical incantation. I am pleading everything that Christ's blood purchased for me at Calvary. Not just salvation from sin, not just salvation from hell, but that means shalom. That things ought to be the way they're supposed to be, that God intended them to be in my life. The shalom. The testimony about Jesus, it's not just about saying Jesus saves, Jesus lives, Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God. No, it's talking about what Jesus taught, how Jesus lived. That's the testimony of Jesus. That's the spirit of prophecy. That's the reason, Alan, that the Bible says, you're an epistle. You're the first epistle of Alan. Paul Gorky, you are an epistle. The first epistle of Paul. David, you're an epistle. As a matter of fact, you and your wife together, y'all are an epistle. Y'all are the epistle of the Lutkes. I'm looking at first Lutke tonight. Is that Polish? German. You see, you are epistles, and that's the spirit of prophecy. That's the spirit of prophecy. When you walk out of this room tonight, you are being prophetic. I get so tickled that people go, ooh, prophet so-and-so is coming to town. You are prophets. You are living prophetic lives when you walk out of this room tonight. When you speak the word of God, Satan trembles. But understand this, if I read, read this correctly tonight and exegeted this correctly to you tonight, understand this, when you walk out of this place tonight, you walk out in power, you walk out in dominion and authority, but on the side of every road, there is a lion prowling for your life tonight. There is a battle being fought. And that's the reason you go out of here in the dark. And understand this, this battle is not like Lord of the Rings. You don't defeat a devil with a sword. He ain't got no arms to cut off. He's a spirit. You defeat him by the word of God, the blood of the Lamb, and the word of your testimony, and by loving Jesus more than you love anything else in this world. Has it been worth it to stay a little extra tonight? I sure hope so. I sure hope so. I, amen. Let's stand together and let me pray for you tonight. I love you so much, Jesus. Man, I'd sure rather talk about you than talk about the devil. But I hope that in doing this tonight, that we're wiser to the ways of old Slewfoot. I hope that, Lord, we'll have confidence that if the medieval church could mock him with those character tours, the Lord will understand the power of our lives going out of here, lived in the name of Jesus. God just puts you, puts the devil to open shame one more time. He has to hang his head in shame when he looks at the people of Woodland Church because they are passionate followers of Jesus Christ. 
Now, Lord, I ask you to lead us from victory to victory and faith to faith, here a little and there a little, until that time comes when we stand in your presence. For it's in your name I pray. And everybody said, amen. Come on, victory. I love you. Thank you.